You might want to turn to Matthew chapter 8. I'll be there in a little bit. The title of what I'd like to talk about this morning is Impressing God. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I think so few people understand really the difference in their status and God's status. And I'm going to share this with you in such a way maybe you can understand a little bit how the Lord worked for me in my mind. Because what I do is not really that hard. Because he does it all just about. But I pray from one Sunday to the next that the Lord will show me during the week what he wants me to talk about the next week. And I was going on my merry little way and the Holy Spirit says to me, what would you do if you wanted to impress God? And that stopped me in my tracks. I hadn't thought about anything like that in a long time. And my first thought was, God made us out of dust. The most common thing in the world. The cheapest thing in the world. There's no market for dust that I know of. You can't sell a whole truckload of it for a penny that I've ever heard of. And that's what he made us out of. And it says in the Word that he remembers that we were dust. And he has mercy on us because we were made out of stuff that was so common. And I know that most, after a study I did several years ago about dust, that just about every writer of the Bible brings out the fact that they remember that they are dust because God remembers that we are dust. And it behooves us probably to remember that we don't walk so tall. In Psalms chapter 50 and verse 10, this is said, and I, you know, the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance the things that, that Jesus said, the things that are in the Bible. And this is the thing that the Holy Spirit is bringing to my mind as I'm thinking about this. God says, Every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now you've heard that, that sermon preached probably. I've heard that sermon preached on the cattle. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills several times. But the rest of it I've never heard preached. He said, I know all the fowls of the mountains. 
and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And then he says something here that gives you an idea about how his mind works. He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) God says, in a way, I don't need you guys. I created you for a purpose that I have, but I don't need you. And in Job 38, when Job got just a little bit smart mouth, God came back to him And he asked Job, and, 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 and you can just detect it in his voice, who is this, he says. Who are you, Job? To counsel my words without knowledge. Who is this who is talking and doesn't have a clue what he's talking about? And then he starts asking Job, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Where were you when this happened? Do you know at what stage of the year the baby mountain goats are born? That's one of the things he asked. Ask him about 30, 35 questions. And of course Job couldn't answer any of them. Is it saying is he put Job in his place? We were talking about last week about being in your place or out of your place. Well, Job got out of his place and God put him back in his place. Reminded him of where he's supposed to be. He says, I'll demand that you answer me. But Job couldn't answer him because he didn't know the answer to any of the questions God was asking him. And then I thought about what it said in John 14, 9, when Jesus says to Peter, I meant to Philip, because Philip asked him, show us the Father. He said, Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We should know, if we don't, then I'll remind you that God sent Jesus to show us who God was. And Jesus was just like him. And in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. We're just alike. When you've seen me, you've seen him. And he mentions in that 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 God is invisible. Nobody's really ever seen him. But he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So 
So I got to thinking. My next thought then was, well, if I've got to answer, what would I do to impress God? And if he and Jesus are the same, then maybe I could look up and find what impresses Jesus and know what would impress God. There is a word in the Bible that's used about 20 times. It's called marvel and marveled past tense. The definition of the word is to be amazed. It's to be emotionally, emotionally moved. And so I looked up to see that word, how many times it was used and where it was used, and it was used twice on Jesus. It said he marveled two times. He was moved emotionally two times at least. Now you know one time he cried because he was looking at Jerusalem and he said Jerusalem was a bunch of people without a leader. And he would have liked to have, like a mother hen, have gathered Jerusalem under his wings like a mother hen does her chicks. And he cried because of it. Two times he cried, one time then and one time when Lazarus, when he got to Lazarus' grave, he cried over Lazarus. I think probably he cried because Lazarus had been dead four days and was in heaven. And Jesus saw that in the act of bringing Lazarus back to life, he was going to have to bring him back from heaven and put him back on the earth where all the Pharisees were trying to kill him every day. I believe that's the reason he cried, not because he was sorry that he died, because Jesus understood dying differently than anybody else did. So marvel means to move somebody emotionally. That's what it meant in that day. And there's two times that Jesus, the word is used of Jesus. So if Jesus was amazed about something and was moved because of it emotionally, well maybe there'd be a way to impress God the same way. So in Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, begging him. A centurion was an army officer who was over a hundred men. And saying, Lord... My servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy. He was paralyzed. Grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I'll come and heal him. And then the centurion answered Jesus and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. 
but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. You don't have to walk all that far to come to my house to heal him. All you've got to do is say a word and, and he'll be healed if you want to do that. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go and, and he goeth. And to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. This man was a man that understood authority. You understand authority if you're in the military because you'll get in trouble if you don't. You always notice the bars on a man's shoulder or the stripes on his sleeve. Every time you walk up to somebody you don't know, you better check out and just see how big a rank he's gotten. Is he ranking over you? And if he does, you better be respectful of him. And that's what this soldier was telling me. I understand authority. I have to do what people tell me that's over me, and people have to do what I tell them that are under me. And all you've got to do, you've got the authority to heal. I've seen that. We have all know that. So all you've got to do, you don't have to come to the house. Just say a word and he'll be healed. When Jesus heard that, he marveled, it said. And he said to them that followed him, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. Jesus was moved emotionally at this man's, the amount of faith that this man had. If you will, turn to Mark chapter 6. Just a few pages over to the right. Mark chapter 6. And verse 1. And Jesus went out from thence, and came into his own country. He went home. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things, and what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Now Jesus was known to do miracles. And wherever he traveled, the word was getting ahead of him that here comes this guy that can heal people and, 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 and command devils to lead people and, and to put the lame to walking and the blind to seeing and whatever. But the home folks, the folks that lived in his neighborhood, down the street, saying, where did he come to be able to do this? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us in this community? 
We know his sisters. We know his brothers. How in the world did this kid that was raised up right here in the neighborhood get to the place to where he could do what he's doing and speak with the authority that he's speaking with? Where did he learn this stuff? He's never been to school. And they were offended at him. Now that word is not used like we, we use it today. We use it today like somebody got upset because somebody hurt their feelings. That's not the way it was used. The way it was used is then is to stumble. To offend somebody was to make him stumble. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I think, in verse 3, it talks about offend no one in anything lest the ministry be blamed. Don't go around hurting folks' feelings because people have a tendency to blame the church. Or if you confuse people, they have a tendency to, con- to blame the church. So what you do as a Christian, you do not do bad things in front of people who are searching for Jesus himself because they'll be able to look at you and say, I can't understand what's going on with him. That's crazy. Maybe I don't need Jesus at all. That's the problem he's got about that he had about it. But to offend people was to make them stumble or confuse them on their way to Jesus Christ. So see, you're really hurting the church when you do that. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country. In other words, I can be famous all over the world. I can be a big man all over the world. I can be a superstar all over the world till I get back in my own neighborhood and then everybody remembers when I was just a kid and the dumb things I did and nobody's got any respect for me. That's what he said. A prophet, a preacher has respect everywhere except among his neighbors who remembered what kind of trouble may he might have got into when he's a kid or something. But from what I understood, Jesus didn't get in any trouble. But still, that's the point. But in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house, people don't believe what I'm doing because they remember me from the neighborhood. And he could do there do no mighty works. Jesus couldn't do anything at home because there was nobody there with any faith. Save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. A few sick folks. Apparently, Jesus had an idea that he was really going to show the folks at home what he could do. But you see, it takes faith to heal people. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
and went around about the villages teaching. He couldn't do many miracles at home. And he marveled at that. He was amazed that the people had no more faith than they did. Now look, the two times that Jesus was emotionally moved, both times was about faith. So I ascertained at that point that maybe the way to impress God was with your faith. Because the two things that impressed Jesus was about faith. I looked up the definition of faith the biblical definition of faith in Strong's Dictionary. And the word faith means belief, or in the verb form, to believe. So faith means that you believe. Then I looked up belief. And belief says to have faith in. So you see, believing and faith, as it comes down to it, both are interchangeable. To believe means to have faith. To have faith means to believe. So Jesus was moved by people who had a lot of faith, and people who didn't have any faith. He was impressed with the centurion, and he was disappointed with the people around his neighborhood. So you see, it's not about how you see it. I mean, you can be impressed and, and marveled, or you can be disappointed and marveled. It's the thing is just to be emotionally moved about it. I mean, for something to hit you to the point to where it kind of takes you back a little bit. And you stop and you think about it. So now my next thought was how does that apply to us? If we know this that we just looked at and we know the Bible is true, we know it says what it says and what it says is true. How does it apply to us? What can you and I do to impress God? Well, anything we can do of a physical nature, if I can pick up 100 pounds, he can pick up a ton. If I can run 20 miles an hour, he can run 50. God is just not that impressed with us because he created us out of nothing. And he remembers who we are. So what out of all that relationship would move him and amaze him? It's how much faith we have. So then the question that comes next is, how much faith do you have? 
I understand that God gives us a certain amount of faith and there's even a spiritual gift of faith that people have more faith than anybody else because God gives it to them. So how would you impress God? In Hebrews chapter 11, a few books over, to the right. There's a verse over there. Verse 6. Chapter 11 of Hebrews and verse 6. It says, But without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God, listen to this now, there's some requirements. For he that cometh to God, or she, must believe that he is. I've thought about it before, preached a sermon or two on it, I guess, taught a Sunday school lesson or something, that it says in the Bible, in the beginning, God. Now, if you don't believe that, you might as well stop right there because the rest of it's not going to make sense anyhow. You have got to, if you're coming to God, you've got a plan to be a Christian. You've heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think you believe it and you want to accept it and be a Christian. There's one thing that you've got to believe, that God is who he says he is. You can't get anywhere in this business without that must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, let's look at that verse and see if we can squeeze a little bit more juice out of this lemon. Number one, it says... if you're going to come to God, you've got to believe that he's who he says he is. That's what we just said. But the second thing that it implies is that if you want to get anywhere with God, that he will reward you if you do what he says to do. So then to know God and to realize who Jesus is because he says I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no man come to the Father except by me. Then we realize that if we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and become a Christian that God will start to work on us and give us this blessed life that he promises to us. So then, that brings another assumption if you want to be a Christian, you got to work at it. You got to do something. Because to know that God is who he is 
and that Jesus is who he is, and the gospel of Jesus Christ says what it does, and you know you've got to come to God through Jesus, then you realize that all you have to have to be motivated to do things that God wants you to do is to understand that that, those things are so. And so it brings on the fact that once you figure out who Jesus is, that that motivates you to do the thing that Jesus wants you to do, that God commanded you to do. So the question comes up then after that, how do I get motivated? Well, this verse right here says, if you know that, you ought to be motivated yourself. You already ought to be motivated. You ought to be doing things for God. Turn over a few pages to James chapter 2. James has got a different twist. Now here's the brother of Jesus. He wrote this book here. He's one of them is listed. The neighbors said, we know his brothers. One of them is James and one of them is Joseph. One of them is Judas. Well, James, his brother, wrote this book. And here's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? James asked a question. If you say you're a believer, that means you have faith that what you have heard about Jesus and God is true. So then his granddaddy used to say, even a turtle to get anywhere has to stick his neck out. So you start sticking your neck out for Jesus. You start doing things, assuming that you're going to be blessed because you do it. That's the motivation of doing it. But then here comes James. He said, hey, some of you guys out there claim to be a Christian and you're not doing anything. And we've just been studying that faith is the thing that you have to have to be born again. But James asked the question, can you be saved if you believe and have faith and don't do anything? You don't do anything for God ever. You never stick your neck out and take a chance. You never tell somebody about Him. You don't help somebody that needs help. As I said last week, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. If a man doesn't do anything, that's what James said. Is he a Christian? What does it profit a man, my brethren? Though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? He asked that question. And then we go to verse 17. Even so faith if it hath not work, is dead being alone. He comes up with a result. 
If you got faith, you believe, and you say you're a Christian, for the most part, it's pretty well dead if you don't do something. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. Prove to me you believe and you don't do anything. And I will show thee my faith by my works. I can show you that what I do means that I put out an effort to do what God wants me to do so that I can be called a Christian. Thou believest that there is one God. Now I wrote in my Bible over that you believe only that there is one God. He said if that's the way you are, you believe and you think it's you can be a Christian by just believing. He makes the point. Thou doest well. You're doing good. So say you got faith and you're a Christian. But think about something. The demons also believe. They know there's a, there's a, there's a Christ. They know there's a God in heaven. And they tremble. They're so scared of the God and Jesus that we're talking about serving that they shake, they're so scared of him. And are you not afraid of him? Do you not have a fear of the Lord that would make you want to do something for God because of what you realize he's done for you? But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 24. You see then, the brother of Jesus says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. All right, here's another word. What does that mean? What does justified mean? And what did it mean in that day? To be justified is to be proven that you're right. And what proves a man to be right when he says, I'm a Christian? The works that he does, the effort that he puts out, the trouble that he goes through to be God's man is the thing that proves that he's right in what he does. So if he's got real faith, he's going to do something. Sometimes, even if it's wrong, he's going to be moved to do something for the Lord. He may not understand everything he needs to understand to serve God, but he's going to do something. Because he's going to realize that God is a rewarder. He knows this too. That God says, if you work for me, then I'll be glorified 
but you'll be blessed too. And you come up with the things that people normally use. Do you use your money to help somebody that's in need? Do you use your sweat and time and your effort to try to help somebody that needs some help? Those things that James, the brother of Jesus, says, if you really truly believe, you're going to do something to let people know that you're a believer. And you see the Holy Spirit of God is within you that coaxes you into doing these things. It's not like you've got to make up your own mind. The Holy Spirit is saying he needs help, help him. Don't have to turn there, but Matthew 12 and verse 33 says, Jesus says this, a tree is known by its fruit. Now that is another normal, natural, everyday, real way of trying to make a point to people who are for probably the most part uneducated. A tree is known by the fruit that it bears. And he puts that analogy onto a Christian. A Christian is known by what he does. Not just what he thinks in his head, but what he does. Folks wouldn't know an apple tree. Some folks wouldn't. Some folks would, I guess, if people are pretty familiar with apple trees, they'll recognize an apple tree when they see one by the leaves and the shape and the size and all that kind of stuff. But really and truly, a lot of folks wouldn't recognize an apple tree unless there's an apple hanging on it. And that's what he's trying to say. If people are going to catch on to the fact that you're a Christian, you're going to have to act like one. Then the next question comes up to me in my mind. Do people who know you know where you stand on the things of the Bible? Where you stand as far as God and Jesus is concerned? Do they understand what you believe by the way you talk, your fruit, and by what you do, the work that you do? So it would seem to me, now here's another one of those things I said something last week, about normally we go to the Bible, we single out scriptures to prove a certain doctrine of the Bible. And that's what I've done today. What is this thing about impressing God? How do you impress God? Well, if you want God to take notice of you, You do it with your works. Now see, there's another thing that we should know by now. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We've said that over and over and over and over. 
So you're known by your fruit, what you do, and your good works is the way God gets glorified. Now, I don't understand everything I know about that, but apparently people who see you, and maybe like these neighborhood people, knew Jesus when he was a kid and wasn't so smart, They say if he's doing this stuff, God's got to be behind it because by himself he wouldn't do it. <laughs> so that's one way God gets the glory out of what you do. You're a nice guy because God makes you a nice guy, not because you're normally a nice guy. So that way God gets glorified. And when God gets glorified, Jesus is glorified also. So the question then winds up with all of that thinking process and the way you go through it, you're looking at the scriptures and God is saying, remember this, remember that, remember this, remember that. God said this, God said that. So how do you impress God? By what you do as a Christian. By acting like a Christian. And it confuses people. Like the people in his hometown. They were offended. That means they stumbled. They confused. They didn't understand. Where did Jesus get all this stuff he's doing? I mean, we've been knowing him since he was a kid. Where did he get all this? But you do enough for God over and over and over, people begin to figure out who you are. And they'll start giving God the credit for some of what you're doing. So let me encourage you. The Bible says in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. People can't see God. They can't see the Holy Spirit. They can't see Jesus. But they can see you. And they can watch you do things and come to the conclusion you're either a Christian or you're not. Because faith is believing something is there when you can't see it. <laughs> and if you can't do that, you're not going it's impossible to please God. Do I know there's a heaven? In my mind, I do. Have you ever seen it? Nope. Do I know there was a Jesus? Yep. In my mind, I do. Did you ever see it? Nope. But it's like the song said. If God is dead, if there's no such thing as God, then who's this in my heart? Don't you feel it? Don't you know who, that something's in there? Causing you to do the things you do. 
First chapter of Romans we looked at three or four weeks ago says that you do. You know it. Because you know something is in there causing you to do things that you probably wouldn't do if it wasn't in there to make you do it. Because we're naturally selfish people. We don't want to do anything that wouldn't help us. And we don't want to do anything that make us, might make us embarrassed in front of some people who aren't Christians and make fun of us if we act like we are. But you see, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells each one of us makes us overcome all of those things. The hesitation, the heart condemning us, saying you can't do that. The Holy Spirit's bigger. Jesus said you'll have trouble in the world. But I have overcome the world. And he's talking about Satan. You'll have trouble from Satan, but I'm bigger than Satan, and I can handle him, and I'll handle him for you. Let's pray. Lord, make us understand what your word says and how this thing works. That if folks are going to know we belong to you, we need to be about your work. And Lord, we understand that for each one of us, that's something totally different. Each one of us is called to do something different than the others. But Lord, as long as you ask us to do it, it doesn't matter what it is. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. And we honor you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.